Well, over our conference weekend, we've been looking at the theme, Building for Christ in a Hostile World, and we've been taking uh, little snippets from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of Jesus by His Spirit in the lives of His Apostles. And today we come to look at um, the church, a church that makes an impact in a hostile world. And for this, we will be looking at the church in Antioch. Now, you may or may not know that our denomination once had a mission work in Syria and Lebanon and Turkey. My own grandfather was in Syria and Lebanon for 50 years, and my father was born in Antioch. So when we read today of the church in Antioch, I do so with a certain degree of emotion uh, to think that this is the city in which my father was born. And it's easy to forget the history of our church as well and the missionary history of our church. If you're not familiar with it, I do encourage you to read the book. I think it's called The Covenanters in Ireland, but it's The Covenanters in much more than Ireland and read about the mission work uh, that went on uh, and if I could even plug my mother's book, <laughs> she wrote a book about uh, Dr. Martin, who was one of the, the, the first missionaries uh, in Syria. So we read, uh, first of all, from chapter 11 of the book of Acts, uh, from verse 19. And then we'll skip into chapter 13. So let's hear God's word together. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And then we skip over into chapter 13, and we'll read the first 12 verses of chapter 13. So Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, and a, me a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to, to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." Amen. And we ask God to, to bless the reading and, and the preaching of his word. So I'd ask you to turn in your Bible to this passage, the second passage that we read, Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 12. This is a, a chapter that marks an, a decisive and an important turning point in the book of Acts and in the history of the Christian church. Up to now, the focus of the book of Acts has been the ministry of Peter. And it has largely been a ministry amongst Jews or those of a Jewish background. But from this point on, Luke will be drawing our attention to the ministry of Saul or, or Paul. And although Paul will continue to preach to the Jews, and we see uh, we will see that right up to the final chapter of the book. His ministry will become more and more a ministry to the Gentiles. And that's a, a big change in the gospel work and in redemptive history. Jesus refers to Paul in Acts chapter 9 as my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. And so this is the beginning, if you like, of a worldwide missionary movement. A gospel stone was thrown into the pond at Jerusalem. And the ripples are now moving out further and further. And it's like another stone is thrown in here again at Antioch. And the expansion of the Christian church that will turn the world upside down begins with the church in Antioch. It's a church with a vision, with a burden, with a passion for the glory of God. And this, this church starts a movement that continues even today. 
The Church of Antioch begins a missionary movement that brings the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. It's a church that makes a real impact in the world. And isn't that what we want for our church, for our local congregation, for our denomination? Don't we long and pray that our churches would make an impact in the world around us? We don't just want to exist, to fill the pews Lord's Day after Lord's Day. We don't want to become insular in our thinking. As long as we're all right, well, not worry too much about the world out there. And we don't want to just spend 40 or 50 years doing a nice thing, getting a nice building, and then, well, we'll just retire and we'll see what happens. No, we want a vision. We need a vision. We need a vision for reaching the world for Christ. We need a vision of what the gospel can do. We need Christ's vision for Christ's church. And without that vision, we will perish. Do we want to reach our neighborhoods around us for Christ? Do we want really to see the gospel advancing in homes in Mosley, in Yutnabe, in Nantes, in Galway, in Kobe? Or are we just happy as long as we're comfortable and not being asked too much of us in the four walls of our church? These are fundamental questions that we must answer. Have we a vision, not just for turning over and turning over, but a real vision for the future of our church, the future of our work? How does God want to use us? We're servants of Jesus Christ. That's your identity. We exist to serve him. Now, how are you going to do that as a congregation, as individuals, as families? And to help us in that reflection, I want us to look at together, to, together the characteristics of this church in Antioch. What does a church look like that God chose to have an impact in the world some 2,000 years ago? And in a church that will have an impact in our world today? And I want us to see five things in this passage that I believe will be true of any church that seeks to have an impact in a hostile world. And the first thing we see is a church dedicated to the Word of God. A church dedicated to the Word of God. The first time we read of the church in Antioch in chapter 11, and almost the first thing we notice is the ministry of the Word in that church. Chapter 11, verse 19 we read, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 11, verse 25, we see that Barnabas goes to look for Saul in Tarsus to take him to Antioch. And what do they do when they get there? 
verse 26, So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the commitment to the word is emphasized again in chapter 13. In verse 1 we read, There were prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch. The church has not been in existence for very long. But already in a short time, this priority of the ministry of the word has been established. There are preachers and teachers of the word. And since the word of God is at the heart of the church in Antioch, it's not surprising to see that in verse 5, the two missionaries who are sent out from this church, what do they do? They proclaim the word of God. Now why is the word of God so important? Well, it's through that word that we are nourished. It's through that word that we come to know the truth. It's through that word that God reveals himself to us. He reveals his plan of salvation. But friends, we need to be very careful. And I think especially in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, we need to be very careful not to make an idol of the word. We don't worship the word. We worship the God revealed in the Word. The Word is precious, but it's precious because it brings us to God. And we don't just want to fill our heads with religious knowledge as an end in itself. The goal of the Word is to reveal Christ and to draw us to Christ. That's why we're dedicated to to the word. And we speak about being a church with a strong ministry of the word, but is that ministry changing us? Is that ministry making us more like Christ, giving us a greater passion for Christ? That's the goal of the ministry, to draw us closer to Christ and to make us more like him. And so, like Antioch, we need to be committed to the Word of God. And we go out into the world around us with the Word, not with our ideas, not with our philosophy of life. We don't invite people to hear the speeches of a good speaker. No, we, we bring the light of the Word into darkness. And do you notice how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in these verses? The church at Antioch is a spirit-led, Bible-centered church. And so if we keep the the spirit-inspired word before us, that will be the spirit's main tool to guide us, to feed us, and to teach us, to sanctify us, to transform us. It's the sword of the spirit that's our main weapon as a church in spiritual warfare. So a church that impacts a hostile world will be dedicated to the Word of God. The second thing we see that will impact our world is a church that's zealous for the glory of God. We see in verse 2 that they are worshipping the Lord. They worship the Lord. They glorify God by worshipping Him. Here's a church that recognizes that the main activity for which we have been created and redeemed is the worship of Almighty God. 
they didn't have the shorter catechism, but if they had had it, they would have known that man's chief end is to glorify God. There's a zeal for the glory of God. And we can say that if we can say that man's chief end is to glorify God, we can also say that God's chief end is to glorify God. And when we read our Bible, it is clear to us that God wants us to be a people passionate and zealous for his glory. Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples, let all the peoples praise you. Psalm 96, give glory to the Lord for his name. God wants his people to be zealous for his glory. The church at Antioch had experienced God's grace and mercy. That's what Barnabas reported back when he, when he went from Jerusalem. He saw the grace of God. It was transformed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And their response is to worship. The glory of Jesus Christ. But the response doesn't end there. The church zealous for the glory of God will be a church that sends people out to announce that glory to the nations. And we must understand this principle. If mission exists, it is motivated first and foremost not by the desire to see, see people saved. Important as that is. I remember Mr. Donnelly speaking from Ephesians years ago and saying that and I thought, what? But he was right. Of course we want to see people saved. But the greater motivation, the greater reason, is because we want God to be glorified by those people who will be saved. Listen to what John Piper says in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. The highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as it is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God. But rather, zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we need to be gripped by a vision, an understanding of the glory of God. Otherwise, we will never reach the world around us. Never. We will have no impact in this world. Just to test our zeal for the glory of God, what is it in society that grieves you most? What aspects of what you see in society grieves you most? Is it Antisocial behaviour? Is that what annoys you most? Is it people driving badly? Every time I come to Northern Ireland and drive up the road out of Belfast, I get annoyed at people sitting in the middle lane, get into the left lane. And you think, why am I getting annoyed about that? Is it people dropping litter? Is that what annoys you? Is that what upsets you when you see our world? Or is it seeing countless millions who are robbing God of his glory? We see hundreds of thousands of people, you can probably see this picture, in Mecca. 
swarming round what's called the Kaaba, that big black box in the middle of the, the square. Just like heaving people, masses of people. That should make us weep. They're giving glory to a false god. They're robbing God of his glory. Millions of people created to glorify Jesus Christ and they're robbing him of his glory. They were made to to worship him and they're not doing it. And a church zealous for the glory of God will be deeply grieved to see a world where he is being robbed of his glory. We sing, proclaim his glory among the peoples. Well, let's folks commit ourselves to proclaiming his glory amongst those who have never recognized it. Two years ago, we went to the Stade de France, or the Stade de France, as it's said in the Irish media. And we enjoyed the game, even though Ireland lost. And in many ways, it was an amazing experience when you hear... I, I could play it on my phone. You hear some 80,000 French people singing uh, the, the Marseillaise a cappella. It's quite spine-tingling. But I couldn't help feeling profoundly sad in that whole experience, not because we lost, but because I thought, how many of these 80,000 people who are singing their hearts out today, how many of them will be in a place of worship tomorrow morning? Here they are singing the praises of men who are running around after a ball. How many of them will be singing the praises of Almighty God? That should grieve us. Are we zealous for the glory of Christ? Zealous enough to proclaim it? Or are we just happy to have a comfortable life? A church that's zealous for the glory of God. The next thing we see is a church willing to make sacrifices. We've already seen this a little bit with the children. If there's one thing we see in the New Testament with the Christian life, it is that it's a life where we're called to make sacrifices. And there are two things in our text this morning that help us to see that the church in Antioch is prepared to make sacrifices. First of all, we see that it's a fasting church. Verse 2 while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. And then verse 3 we see, after they had fasted and prayed. Well, what's this fasting all about? Maybe children, you don't know what this fasting is about. Well, it's simply going without food in order to do something else. It's not going without food because we've eaten too much at the last meal. You may have fasted uh, this morning or you may fast this evening because you've had too much to eat. It's not that. It's sacrificing a meal or sacrificing food in order to devote yourself to something else. And here it's prayer and worship. And that is sacrifice. That's saying, I'm hungry, I want to eat, but I have something more important to do. And I sacrifice those desires that I have in order to serve Christ. And to impact the world for for Christ, we must be people willing to say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus. We need to be a church willing to make sacrifices for the cause of Christ. The church in Antioch, they made sacrifices to worship and to pray. They fasted to worship and to pray. 
And that's what you do when you come to church in the Lord's Day morning. There are other things you could be doing. But you say no to those things. To say we're going to the place of worship. When you have family worship, there are other things you could be doing. But you say no to those things. You fast from those things in order to worship, in order to pray. And we think in France at the minute, if you want to compete in any sport at any sort of level, well, you're going to have to compete in the Lord's Day. And so to worship, for a sporting Christian to worship, that's a sacrifice. We fast from that in order to worship, in order to, 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 to come to the place of worship with God's people. So we might fast from the TV or from the internet or from a video game in order to read God's word, in order to pray, in order to, to meet with other Christians. And we can be pretty sure that the praying in these verses that we read about is praying for the work of missions, praying for the missions to the Gentiles, praying that for those whom God would send and for those who would be reached by the missionaries. And a commitment to praying for the work of mission will inevitably, inevitably mean sacrifice of time and energy. And now we have to ask, are we willing to make those sacrifices? And we have to admit as well that we, we all make sacrifices to do the things that matter most to us. And so are we willing to make those sacrifices to have an impact in the world around us? To pray for the nations lost in spiritual darkness, we will be called to sacrifice. Are we ready for that? And then we see the sacrifice of the church in Antioch and the fact that they're prepared to send off two of their best men. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit made this clear to them, but that's not the most important thing here. What we see is the response. The church immediately obeys God's command. There's no opposition. There's no voice to say, but, but Saul and Barnabas are needed here. They already have a fruitful ministry here. We need to keep them here so that our church can benefit from them. No. If God calls them, we send them. And of course, you know that in a very real sense this weekend. And it's hard, but it's what the Lord calls us to do. God sent his son. Jesus sent his disciples the church sends their people. That's the model. That's the model. And the church at Antioch sent two giants of the faith. Of course that left a hole. Holes that were, were hard to fill. But we are a church that sends people to reach the lost with the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, How will they hear without preachers? And how can there be preachers if they are not sent. And so today you send the peels off with your blessing because you have a vision of what God will do through Gal in Galway, through them in Galway. God has given you the peel in the Herata family for a season and now he's asking you to send them on. And you're only doing what this congregation has been doing for decades. I look down to see Pearl sending her son off to Australia. I see Di sending her son off to America. 
and others I could talk about. You've sent, you've sent, you've sent. Don't stop. Don't stop. Are you worse off because you've sent? Has Trinity lost out in those decades because you've been sending people? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, you've been blessed even more. And so, yes, there's sadness, but there's great joy. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's what the church in Antioch did, and that's what you're doing today. A church willing to make sacrifices. And then, more briefly, we see two more things. A church ready to seize opportunities. Barnabas and Saul leave to Cyprus. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Really, he's just going home to preach to the people he would have known. That's never easy. But he goes, and it surprises us a little that they go to the synagogue. Paul has been chosen as the missionary to the Gentiles. Ananias has told him that he would take God's word to the nations. But a door opens in the synagogue, and so these men seize that opportunity. They're not going to say, no, no, no. We know there are people who need to hear, but we have other people we need to reach. And verse 7 tells us that in Paphos they meet Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. He calls Barnabas and Saul with a strong desire to hear the word of God. Here's a man seeking answers to his questions, a thinking man with with a real spiritual thirst. And he's got questions. He's probably heard the words of the false prophet, this magician, uh, Elymas or Bar-Jesus, but he's still hungry. And he invites Saul and Barnabas to, to, to explain what verse 12 calls the doctrine of the Lord. And he believes because he's deeply struck by the word of God. So opportunities arise to a crowd of people, to an individual, and, Paul and, and, and Saul and Barnabas take these opportunities. They're ready to speak. If it means speaking in front of a crowd, they'll do it. If it means taking time with one person, they'll do it. Wherever people are willing to listen, are, they, are we willing to speak? To Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter. Wherever the opportunity arises, we take it. And God has placed you in your neighborhood, in your home, in your workplace, in your school, your club, with your friends, places that your pastor has no access to, but you have access to, people that you have access to. And he's placed this church and this community for a reason. And he calls us to seize opportunities to speak about him, to witness. That's It's not possible in every conversation, every minute of every day. But let us pray. Let us pray earnestly for those opportunities and that when they arise, we will take them. Let us be intentionally looking and seeking even to create opportunities and then to seize them. I think of a few weeks back at a... a, waiting for Matthew at his table tennis club uh, and there was another group uh, adults coming in after his practice and this young guy sits down beside me and we got chatting and in every conversation you're thinking will there be an opportunity here to speak of Christ and uh, he, he, he knew I wasn't French and he asked what I was doing in Nantes and I said well I'm a pastor of a church whoa I have so many questions I said, can I, and he took out his phone, he said, can I record you answering my questions, please? And his name's Alex. And for 20 minutes, we sat and talked about the gospel. And at the same, at the same club, but a different practice, 
little boy in Mathieu's group. He's called Augustin. And his mother's waiting for him. And we get chatting about school and one thing and another. And Augustin, now he's from a Catholic background, but Augustin's parents aren't believers. But Augustin believes in God. And Augustin reads the Bible. And so for half an hour, Augustin's mother and I, I question, well, why do you not believe? How do you answer your, your son's questions? She says, I don't have an answer for his questions. I said, that's because atheism doesn't have an answer for those questions. And then Augustin comes over at the end of the practice and says, what are you talking about, Mum?" And she says, well, you don't believe this, but we're talking about God. <laughs> and he didn't believe it. And those, us out of the blue, out of the blue, as we make ourselves available to talk with people and, and questions are asked, opportunities arise, we take those opportunities. And then we watch God work out his purposes in their lives. So a church that's ready to seize opportunities. And the last thing we're going to see for a church to have an impact in the world is a church that's ready to face opposition. In the book of Acts, wherever you get the gospel advancing, you will always get an, a wave of opposition and persecution. And that's the case with Barnabas and Saul in Paphos. When they seek to lead uh, the proconsul out of darkness into the light of Christ, it's no academic exercise that they're engaged in. It's not an argument to be won. It's spiritual warfare they're engaged in. It's not just a friendly discussion. There's war there's a battle going on. And since there's a battle going on, Satan is present in the person of his false prophet, Bar-Jesus. And here's a man, a magician, an occultist, a false prophet, an agent of Satan who is fiercely opposed to the light of the gospel. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Saul or, or Paul recognizes what's going on. He's spiritually aware. And he recognizes that Satan is at work you're a child of the devil, he says to him in verse 10. An enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? He doesn't say, stop bothering me. Stop annoying me. Leave me alone. Give me peace. No, Paul recognizes opposition to God. Opposition to the gospel. It's not personal. It's spiritual. And Paul's not afraid to speak hard truths to bar Jesus. He's not afraid to call him to order. God has given Paul a mission. And Paul will not let any false prophet stop him in that mission. And by the grace of God, Elymas is silenced. And Sergius Paulus believes in Christ. Paul doesn't allow opposition to prevent him from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this book shows us clearly that the church that is committed to obeying Christ, this mandate to make disciples of all nations, must be prepared to face opposition. You've known that individually in families. You've known it as a congregation. Satan hates what you're doing. And there is spiritual opposition to what you're doing. And we see that so clearly in Nantes. In some such minor ways, but we see God even 
in, in, in the, build, the difficulties we've had in the building work. We see Satan in the difficulties trying to thwart it and frustrate us, but God has turned it around to accomplish good. We see God's opposition. We see opposition to God within families. We see a new law on a national level, a new law that hinders and limits the freedom of Christians and of church churches. We see it in physical and verbal attacks as we give out leaflets in the street. There's a spiritual battle taking place. And there's a spiritual battle taking place in the heart of every person to whom you present the gospel. It's warfare. It's warfare. And as soon as God's kingdom advances, straight away, Satan's at work. And just like in Paphos, it takes Christians filled with the Holy Spirit to speak the truth boldly. We need the courage that comes from the Spirit to engage in this struggle. You become a target of Satan when you engage in the work of the kingdom. He opposes those who seek to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. He wants to bring you down. He wants to discourage you. He wants to sow doubts in your mind. You've felt, I'm sure, the fear of man. What will others say? Will we give in to that fear? Will we give in to that fear? Will we stay behind the walls of the church because it's safer there? Friends, we have a commission from the King of Kings. We have a commission from the Lord of this universe. We have the promised Holy Spirit living in us. And we know that nothing can thwart the eternal purposes of God. We know that Jesus will build his church. We have seen the glory of God manifested throughout the nations. Are we going to hide within the four walls of the church? Are we going to tremble before the bar Jesuses of this world? Are we going to go out with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ as our standard? Are we going to live for our own comfort? Or are we going to offer ourselves as living sacrifices and say to God, use us, send us, take us, and be glorified through us. A church committed to the word. A church zealous for the glory of God. A church willing to make costly sacrifices. A church ready to seize opportunities. And a church willing to face oppositions. That's the church in Antioch. That's what we want to be said of Trinity in Newton Abbey. That's what we want to be said of Eglise Nantenor, a church that has an impact in a hostile world. Amen. Father, you have laid before us your, the truth of your word this morning. We don't simply want to be those who are hearers of your word, but we want to be transformed by it. We want this vision of the glory of God to shape us in everything we do. We want this to be our passion, what motivates us, what we live for. 
We want this to be our great obsession in life. We're sorry, Father, that we occupy our lives with trivial things so often. And forget that we are called to live for your glory, to declare your glory among the nations. And so we pray that you would make of us, whether it's here in, in uh, Newton Abbey in Trinity, whether it's in Galway or in Japan or in France, make of us, Lord, a people committed to the word of God, not just studying it, not just filling our heads with it, but obeying it and living it out and proclaiming it. Make us zealous for your glory. Make us willing to make sacrifices. Whatever it would be that you would ask of us, may we be willing to lay down our lives at the altar for you and for your kingdom. Make us people ready to seize opportunity that you give us to witness for you, to speak of Christ, Put away from us the fear of man or the fear of what man might do to us. And give us a burden for your glory and for the lost, Father. And make us ready to suffer opposition. We know that we go out and engage in spiritual warfare. We have an enemy. But we thank you that he who is with us is greater by far than he who is against us. And may we go out with boldness whether it be into our homes where we have others who don't yet know you, whether it's into our workplace or our place of study or our neighbourhood, where we do our different activities, and we pray, Lord, that we would go and suffer if we need to, if you call us to. And may we see it as a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.